But as normal, in the first hour, we'll have the paper review. And joining me in studio to carry that out are Fiona Lachlan, Fiona Fall TD and from South Kildare, and a former employee of the Special Olympics Ireland, Eamon Gilmore, former Tánaiste, leader of the Labour Party, and current EU Special Envoy to the Peace Process in Colombia, and Finan Sheehan, editor of the Irish Independent. You're all very welcome. Well, before we do... That we will look at what the headlines are in today's papers. And it struck me that two weeks ago I sat in the exact same seat presenting this show. And that Sunday, every single paper was dominated front page by the Olympics in some guise or another. Two weeks later, it is exactly the same story in all the Sunday papers. The Sunday Times goes with Hickey urged to quit Rugby Cup uh, bid team. This is the actual Irish bid team that is... uh, Following up on a bid to attract the 2020, uh, 2023 Rugby World Cup to Ireland and Pat Hickey is a member of that bid team and he's been urged to step down. There's another uh, Rio story on their front page. Also, Rio ticket tout inquiry to scan six years of emails. And also a sad story on the front page about a business going burst. Dragon bust uh, burnt 1.6 million and failed DJ Carey firm sad story. I said a business going wallop. Uh, The Irish Independent goes with Delaney breaks silence to dispute Hickey's claim. This is John Delaney, the FAI's chief executive. Actually, he's broken his silence for the first time, I understand. Maybe Finn will be able to fill us in a bit more more on that, about uh, how uh, how, um, Pat Pat Hickey is supposed to be reporting who was responsible for the distribution of tickets. Also, below the fold on that page, we have God, Sport and the Rosa Tralee. Brendan O'Connor is telling us that in the space of about three weeks, we casually killed off Sport, the Church and the Rosa Tralee. You get the feeling there's nothing safe anymore. I actually thought there was nothing safe when it came to the media. And the final broadsheet that I have here with me today is the Sunday Business Post. Now, while they don't have a main story about the Olympics, they have a large strap across the front page called Rings of Power, the end of Hickey's Olympic Empire, and pages and pages of ins- of that inside. Their main story is Apple tax deal. State scrambles to keep fine under 1 billion euros. It's a million here and a billion there. Other articles in the paper talking about that. We have a billion to spend in the budget. Will that have an impact on that we'll see. The Irish Mail on Sunday, Brazil blunders delay Malin's Bangu release. This is a story about Kevin Malin whom I suppose should remind people he was the first Irishman to be arrested in this Rio saga. He was released on bail yesterday but he, his release was delayed because they couldn't find an, electro, an electronic tag. Uh, my understanding is that he was eventually re- released without the requirement of an electronic tag. And the Sunday world has the gaffer. This is a story that John Delaney and his fiance in English have moved into the former home of Grania Shoga and her ex-husband, Stephen Cullinan. So all, all Olympic stories of one way or another. But before we start, last Friday we heard the sad news of the death of Peter Barry, former Tánaiste, Eamon Gilmore, as a former Tánaiste and indeed a colleague of his in Linster House for many years. Your reflections on Peter Barry. Well, first of all, I'm very sad that, to hear the, of his passing and I want to express my sympathy with his family, um, many of whom I, I know, of course, Deirdre Clune, um, a colleague, parliamentary colleague yeah. many years as well. Current MEP. When I was elected to the Doyle in 1989, Peter Barry was then chairperson of the European Affairs Committee and I served on that committee for some time with him. But it wasn't the first time that I had met him. I had met him, actually, when I was president of USI 
in the mid-1970s. <clears throat> and uh, we didn't have a particularly good relationship with the government. The Minister for Education at the time was refusing to meet with us. And there was a cabinet reshuffle and Peter Barry became Minister for Education. And he met with us fairly shortly. It wasn't a particularly good meeting. But there was uh, something going on at the time. Uh, they, they, there were protests by students in the then College of Physical Education. And, of course, they were very fit and they were up and they were climbing on the monuments in Dublin, the Parnell Monument and so on, and putting up banners. And I remember at the end of the meeting, Peter Barry turned to me and he said, uh, is there anything you can do to get those fellows down off the monuments? And I said, well, there, yeah, there might be if you could do this and that and the other and so on. And I must say it was, it, it was the start of a, a very good working relationship with Peter Barry because I found him to be very pragmatic, a real gentleman, a great patriot, uh, somebody who believed in public service and delivered uh, public service uh, over a long political career. I think he'll be sadly missed. The, there were reams of copy in yesterday's papers and indeed again today about it and the words that seemed to crop up all the time committed to the highest standard in public office and integrity. Fiona, did you come across him in your travels? Uh, well, certainly I, I listened to him. I watched him on television and I would have heard a lot about him. And I think he was the epitome of a good public servant, as Eamon has said. And while certainly I want to express my condolences to his family, I think that they must take great solace in a great life, very well lived on every level, both as a politician, a servant of the people, as a businessman, as somebody who was absolutely loyal to the core, to his community, to his family, to his county, who provided employment. And I understand from looking through some of the records that unemployment was something that he was very concerned about. So he actually got out there and created jobs. And there's no doubt that, you know, when we look back on his life and on the legacy that he was there, I think there's a lot for many of us that have just come newly into public life in the Dáil to learn from. Well, certainly his legacy seems to be captured by everybody in his, that Anglo-Irish agreement, Fennon. Would that be his greatest political legacy? Yeah, and, and also the fact that he he brought that business experience um, to the role. I mean, Francis Fitzgerald signs off today in the, in the Sunday Business Post, pointing to his, you know, almost as an afterthought, his personal success through Barry's tea. Politics was first love. Never, him, it was never a personal success he'd achieved all of that. It was about making a contribution and being of service to his country. But at the same time, he did make quite a lot of... He, 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 you think how much more he could have done on the business side uh, if he hadn't focused on the politics. So you'd, you'd have to say quite honourable in that regard. I was in but his first passion was politics. First passion was politics. And also, he, he was probably viewed on a different level to other politicians in Cork because he came from that business experience, because he... He's he one of the merchant trances. Yeah, a friend of mine texted me the other day and said... Uh, he was at a community meeting in Toker called to discuss the local issue. The chairman said to the politicians present, everybody will need to help now, lads. John, Bat, Michal, Toddy and Mr Barry, you too. <laughs> so he was, uh, he great was he had great, great regard compared to all the other Lachicos <laughs> who were like, this is boys, you'll have to roll in, roll yeah. in here. But he, there was that reverential um, air about him uh, or reflect towards him uh, and there was a profound sense of respect that somebody like him was getting involved in the political sphere. I don't think it's unfair to, I'm not trying to suggest 
yes. yesterday he wasn't a strong constituency politician because he was and, and people have written in the last 48 hours about when um, Cork went through very difficult times in, in the mid-1980s uh, as a result of the closure of Dunlops and, and Ford and, and it felt like there was no industry left in the, in the city and Cork really needs to reshape itself and he was he was involved in the moves towards developing the, the lower harbour in Ringeskiddy and Cork, Cork become a, the, the farmer capital uh, of Ireland and moving it on to a new, a new generation so you know he, he played an important role in that regard but that legacy of the Northern Ireland the peace process and you're involved in the peace process yourself now Eamon you know that has to be his enduring legacy oh, on, on the national and international mm-hmm. level Yes, and I think the thing about Peter Barry in the mid-1980s and the Anglo-Irish Agreement was that uh, if you compare the Anglo-Irish Agreement to the Good Friday Agreement 13 years later, wasn't a huge amount of difference. Uh, the only difference was that over the 13-year period, an awful lot of people were killed and, and lost their lives. So he was ahead of his, he was ahead of his time. And he, uh, the, the, the approach that he took, if you remember the opposition that uh, the Unionists had, uh, the DUP in particular, uh, to what Peter Barry was doing at that time, which was about the what was then called, I think it was Council of Ireland, it was the North South arrangement, which in reality is not that much different from the North South Ministerial Council that emerged from uh, the, the, the Good Friday Agreement. So he was ahead. He was ahead of the game on Northern Ireland. So successful he was. He was that uh, I understand that Paisley wouldn't drink Barry's tea as a result <laughs> of his success. Well, we leave it at that. There, Solas Navlahas Gura We move on to the headlines in today's paper. Finnan, I'll kick off with you as an editor of a paper uh, the fact that the story has lasted two weeks every single day dominating the front pages you know what does that tell us about that story and is there anything new in the story two weeks on yeah well I mean it was the old uh, Seamus Brennan rule of thumb that uh, if you end up on the front page of the weekend papers three weekends in a row you're in deep doo-doo and uh, or, or you're a huge success yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think the former goes in, in this case um I mean, it, it's obviously going to continue to be of public interest when you have uh, such a, a high-ranking sporting figure being in prison, unprecedented uh, in 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 that regard. And still, after three to four weeks, you'd have to say there's still more questions and answers uh, arising from this. I, I don't think we've got a, a satisfactory response uh, from from people within the the OCI. I don't think we've got a a, a satisfactory response, uh, certainly from the the, the individuals uh, who but are on that board. But to the OCI, won't they say, look, we have commissioned uh, an international uh, firm... Well, that's great. After, the, after they stymied initial inquiries, well, what exactly? And, in effect, we're now looking back on, on the original answers coming from the OCI and Mr Hickey and saying, well, they, they don't seem to stack up to the facts that are, that are emerging now... Uh, at at this point, uh, it was I, I thought it was a, a tad ironic to hear uh, Pat Hickey's lawyers coming out accusing the government of not doing enough to help Pat Hickey. Uh, I, my understanding from from the off, uh, not just with Pat Hickey but with Kevin Mallon, is that the Irish ambassador uh, to Brazil has been in constant contact with the Minister for Foreign Affairs and updating him there and providing all consular assistance. But the notion that the Irish government can somehow bounce Pat Hickey yeah, out to, of jail is that your former Minister. For Foreign Affairs, I and mean, we saw the calls of the family on Friday through their uh, lawyer looking for, you know, special well, the intervention by the government, as Finan is saying there. What can the Minister of Foreign Affairs do? Limited, I would imagine. It, it is limited. For, first of all, the uh, ambassador in um, uh, Brazil or the Irish government or the Minister for Foreign Affairs cannot intervene in the Brazilian legal system. Somebody's arrested, any Irish citizen is arrested abroad, you go through the legal system of that country, and this country, in dealing with 
whatever country it is, has to respect that that legal system. What the uh, Irish Embassy can do, and I'm sure is doing, is to provide consular assistance, and that means you know visiting him, ensuring that he has a legal legal representation, um, dealing with the issue of of the conditions in which he which he is being uh, which he's being held, and it would be limited would be limited to that. I think there are two things about this story that strikes me. First of all, Paul O'Donovan won a gold medal at the World Games uh, yesterday on top of his Olympic achievement. And and pulling I like a dog thing, yet again I mean, yesterday. I mean, I was just listening to you there, as you said, the Olympics that were in the news for the last three weeks. They are, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Not for the athletes. And our athletes did extremely well, including people who didn't win medals but came close. Uh, the Michael Conlon, the, the judgment in his case and why he wasn't let through, I, I think is, is something that needs attention. The other thing that I would say is, one of the things that struck me about the, the family statement um, a couple of days ago, uh, and I think we, we we just need to, to reflect a little bit on this. They made the point that he Patricky has not yet had the opportunity of responding. Uh, you know, and uh, isn't that the difficulty people here yeah. in Ireland have with this? I, I absolutely, accept these are the judicial arrangements that are in place in a foreign country, but it is so alien. It is so different to how we manage things here. It is yes. I mean, first of all, uh, you would not have the press turning up for an arrest. Uh, secondly, you would not have. I, I think, don't know if I'd be that categoric now. Well. They uh, probably wouldn't have been filming it. Uh, no, it's probably not. Be aware I've, I've of never, it. Yeah, I've, I've never seen uh, something like that done before. Um, secondly, I mean, this man has not been charged yet. I mean, there is an, maybe it's an old-fashioned idea now, but there is an idea, the idea that you're innocent until you're proved uh, guilty. And uh, what has been happening in this case is the release of what is purporting to be to be evidence, which is in this country would be regarded, I think, if there were a trial as being being highly prejudicial. So I think there are some disturbing aspects of this uh, that um, don't sit easily with the way in which we would um, uh, deal with um, uh, you know you know somebody being charged and having an opportunity in, in the interest of natural justice. I'm yes, amongst the reams of articles written about this topic today, if you're on there's uh, Pat Rabbit is writing about how this has impacted on uh, Shane Ross, the minister. You know, it seems to have got lucky in a way, the minister, the fact that he was rebuffed on his first approach. Uh, rebuffed by Pat Hickey. We're not 100% sure whether that was a rebuffal by the Irish Olympic Council, per se. They, as Finland said, they were stayed quiet on that. But how do you think the Minister has handled it? Um, I, I think he could have handled it better. I think that he should have been on, on top of the game well before he was. And I think that he should have been more decisive in what he felt uh, should be done through the department. I certainly believe that it should be a statutory inquiry as opposed to a non-statutory inquiry because... But hasn't he left it open to the judge to call for if if he feels there's a requirement at the end of the three months? Yes, at the end of it. But I think that that's really only delaying it and that's going to lead to further headlines as well too because we have to have a situation where if documentary evidence is called for that it can be compelled and also in relation to witnesses as well too. I do feel that Pat Hickey has suffered huge indignity and I think it's completely wrong that any person when um, the police forces would come to arrest them and take them away just for questioning that it would be filmed and it would be used on social media and I think that's very very difficult for family and friends so I can understand his family and his grandchildren in terms of their request I don't necessarily agree with the Taoiseach or the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs 
you know, acceding to what they're doing. But I think it must be a very difficult position they're in. But I think it's interesting also to see as a headline on the Sunday Independent that uh, John Delaney has broken his silence. And really he's saying nothing in breaking the silence. So there's still a huge void there. What we have seen in the last three weeks is um, the release of the exchange of emails uh, between the owner of THG, which we understand has been barred really from dealing with tickets because of the the World Cup in Brazil and Pat Hickey. And we've also seen, which we had heard anecdotally, but now we have seen families coming forward who couldn't get their tickets uh, to attend the ceremonies and the games to the OCI and had to resort either to touts or to other countries as well too. So that's completely wrong. So some new information has certainly come in over but, the last few but, weeks. But not, not, I suppose, not illuminating anything. Shane Ross, how do you think he's managed it so far, Finlow? Yeah, I, I mean, and I suppose <coughs> John Delaney's silence until now. I suppose the... Um the, the twist in the tail probably was to Shane Ross be- Ross's benefit in that yeah. he was floundering so badly uh, from from the off, um, going out there in a in a haphazard manner, not really having his his brief uh, thoroughly. But re- his researched. request was reasonable. In fairness to him, his request was was reasonable. But you 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 would think that the, you know a, a fella turning up with an old crumpled linen linen jacket uh, on his own. Doesn't it wouldn't exactly strike fear into the heart of an operator like like Pat Hickey? Uh, he hadn't done his his legal research. He hadn't even bothered to consult with the the Attorney General, who, after all, he regards as somebody who doles out opinions for the sake of it. Uh, well, and he had to he had to, uh, he had to consult to her on his return. He, he had to. Why didn't he consult her? I mean, you you would think that if a, a minister was that perturbed by by an issue at hand, he would have gone to her. Eamon, did you show a little bit of naiveness? in, you know, you ask in politics, you should never ask a question that you don't know the answer to he asked a question and didn't get the answer he expected well i think the first thing that a minister will do is to establish first of all what is their power or mm. what you know what can they do uh, i think the odd thing in this case is that shane ross doesn't appear to have inquired as to what the extent of his powers were until he came home mm. um, and then consulted the the attorney general uh, i think once something like that arises the first question is well what you know what can we do here what what's the extent of you, you know uh if there's something wrong you know what type of inquiry can we have uh is are there powers under legislation that a minister can exercise what's the leverage a minister can use in this case i mean after all uh, most of this is state funding uh and what is the leverage that the minister uses what are the powers under the various uh acts what what can the sports council do and i would have thought that 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 um the change Shane Ross should have armed himself with that uh, information before his first discussion with Pat Hickey when he went to um, when he went to Brazil. But I suppose, in fairness to him, he did that probably a little bit too late. But that's where we ended up. And the advice from the Attorney General that it should be a non-statutory inquiry, and that has upset an awful lot of people. Well, I think it should be a statutory inquiry, and uh, I know that Brendan Howland has made that point. But aren't they, aren't there difficulties associated with that? You have some of the, the main players incarcerated in a foreign land. I think you're going to have that, uh, no matter what type of in- inquiry there is going to to be. Uh, but I think the, you know, if, if the, the inquiry has you know, has statutory powers, I think, you know, then uh, you can overcome those uh, uh, those difficulties. I think the problem here is that 
Shane Ross's approach to it has been very incremental. I mean, the initial request was, can I put somebody in on the OCI inquiry? And then, you know, he comes back and he asks the AG and we have this non-statutory inquiry. Now, sometimes the non-statutory inquiry, of course, does lead to a statutory inquiry. I know there have been a number of examples of where, you know, a judge or a senior legal person has been asked to look at something and then they come back and say, well, actually, we need a statutory inquiry here. But I think that the, the issue has now developed to the extent that I think have have the inquiry get to the bottom of, of what happened here. The, it is going to be complicated anyway, depending on what happens on the legal system in Brazil and whether charges are brought. How about the Olympic Council and John Delaney in particular, uh, Finon? You know, first, we understand this has been his first statement on the matter, saying, look, I don't fully agree with what's been reported about how these tickets were dispersed. Well, he is the man who Patty Hickey himself said was the favourite to, to take over from him. One, one presumes that Mr Hickey was taking all matters into consideration and deciding, oh yeah, John, Hick- or John Delaney is, is best positioned to do that. And yet he's saying he, he had no role whatsoever, uh, doesn't have an executive role and, and so on. Um, so that, that that's curious, I suppose. The, there is a, a wider issue here and it relates back to probably the, the, the story of the month in July. And that was when the, the charity sector was, was under scrutiny. There's a corporate governance issue here. Mm. If basically everybody was saying, well, well, well Patiki dealt with all of that and sure, we didn't know what was going on. Well, then you're kind of looking at the developer members of the board of the OCI going, well, what, what exactly are you there for? Yeah. Can we derive from that that they were happy, their silence in that interim period between the minister asking for a citizen representative on the board and the arrest of Patiki? The silence of the board would lead you to believe that they were happy with Pat Hickey's decision to disallow a citizen. Well, I, I saw a, a quote from Sonia O'Sullivan, Jernick, who I think has been a member of, of the board of the OCI now for eight years, who said, I, uh, I, I wasn't much interested in the administration. But yeah. if you're on the board of an organisation, well, that, that's effectively what you are there for. Uh, you, there are responsibilities upon you. Uh, to, to pay attention to what is coming across the table from the, the president or the chief executive or the managing editor, whoever that is. The board is, in effect, supposed to be both a guardian and also a, a watchdog uh, to ensure that, that uh, the, the organisation's business is carried out in a proper manner. But this inquiry now being carried out, Grant Thornton, will be looking at the overall governance in it. That's clearly needed by what we've seen so far. Yeah, and, and I suppose my point is this probably has uh, will, will set off alarm bells probably in, in other sporting organisations is there a proper structure in place to keep an eye on decisions that, that are being made? So we've now moved from the charities and the, the governance there to the sporting organisation. I see Tom McGurk is writing about that today in the paper, Fiona, that he's kind of saying that a, an amateur organisation and the governance in that, our own GA, could certainly teach lessons to large international organisations. Did you read that? Um, I didn't actually see that article, but he's absolutely correct in what he says. And having worked with community and local groups right throughout the county of Kildare, I'm hugely impressed in the main by the good governance and accountability and transparency that I see within it. And also having worked with Special Olympics and having worked with athletes where you see that the whole, the joy and the endurance and all the obstacles that athletes have to overcome to actually go to represent their county and Eamon is right in saying you know that this whole debacle has taken away from that and most certainly the good governance that we would call for in any organisation certainly is very much there in the whole Special Olympics organisation and I worked on the World Games here in 2003 and we actually took the decision at that point to ensure that there would be no charge for tickets for the opening ceremonies because we actually wanted to 
to ensure that the people who needed to get the tickets would actually have access to them. And that was a controversial enough decision at the time. I think that we were the first country to ever do that. But it was a decision taken by the board uh, because in other countries they had been sold. And where you have a situation where you have... um, You know, prestigious events that uh, are are really fantastic. I've been lucky enough myself to have been at three opening ceremonies for Special Olympics. But when you have prestigious events um, like for the Olympic Games, it's it's always open um, to, you know, um, shall we say the possibility of, of underhand deals. Well, certainly the GA seems to be held up in great, great laudits associated with them today in the papers today. Eamon? The GA is actually a very professionally uh, run organisation these days and, and very well run. But I think the strength of the GA is its roots in community. And uh, again, if you look at... Uh, I suppose uh, we should say it is not without its difficulties at times. We have well, some county boards having to get big out. <laughs> <on occasion. laughs> yeah, they also have, interestingly enough, they actually have uh, a system for distribution of tickets, you know, which goes through the yeah. various county boards. And, and, and you know, ensures players, the, uh, families and, get... Uh, that's right, yes. They, they, uh, no, mind you, you know, come September, there will be complaints all over the place about ticket allocation. But I think if you look at all of the sports and if you look at all of the sports that are embodied by, embraced by the OCI, you'll find that this morning, today, you know, out there, there are athletics clubs, there are boxing clubs, there are, you know, people at community level who are working with uh, youngsters who one day uh, will come through and, you know, be seeking to to be on, on the Olympic stage. And again, that's, I think, which brings it back to, you know, we, we've got to keep the focus here on the athlete, on the uh, on the on the participant, I think if we allow our discussion on sport to be concentrated just on the boardrooms and just on what's going on at that executive level, I think we'll distort the picture. The the real work is being done uh, in the gyms, on the tracks, uh, in fields, uh, people with very little resources, uh, and even athletes as they are coming through the Olympic system. You know, they you know they they, they live a pretty hand to mouth existence uh, for most of the time, and uh, I I think we need to we cannot lose sight of that and I think if we do I think we'll do a lot of damage. Well maybe politics of sports boardrooms might be dominating uh, the headlines at the moment they'll soon be replaced and if the inside papers pages are anything to go by by politics of another nature the budget which is looming and looming fast and a lot of articles in the papers pointing towards budget or budget related issues. Finan were you looking at some of those in the papers you know? Well great great news for Andy Kenny now this morning John McGuinness saying that uh, Fianna Fáil may vote against the budget. He said they said they better be prepared to vote down the budget. Whatever John McGuinness says, Michal Martin thinks the complete and utter opposite. So Enda Kenny can sit back, <laughs> enjoy the next few weeks ahead of the All-Ireland uh, football final, uh, whenever whoever Mayo shall be playing, and relax. Don't worry about it. The budget is safe. But, you know, isn't John McGuinness right? Isn't he, Fiona? You're going to vote against it if you don't like what's in it. Uh, no, I don't think John McGuinness is right at all. I mean, you know, we had very long discussions at parliamentary party level in relation to actually getting to the point where we had the confidence and supply agreement with the Fine Gael-led government. And Micheál Martin made it very clear at that point and ever since that we are in this for the long haul in terms of providing stability where it is needed. Long haul, clarify, two, three years, two, three budgets, what is uh, it? it? It's it's two budgets minimum with the possibility 
of a third and then we will uh, take a rain check and see where we're at and not ruling it out continuing further. Now obviously we put broad parameters in there in terms of different areas that we would like to see addressed and uh, some of those have already come to play particularly when you see the National Treatment Purchase Fund uh, being reinstated and also in relation to the rent the rent increase um, for, for those who need to have that. There's other areas like career guidance teachers that we're very strong on as well too. I certainly feel that we need to, to work together. We are at this point in time as a party preparing a pre-budget submission ourselves and we'll be doing that through Michael McGrath and Micheál Martin. So when will that budget be available? That will be the budget, won't it? The Fianna Fáil pre-budget submission will be the actual budget this time around. Well, I, I like to think that we're playing our role in collective responsibility in ensuring that there is stable government. But we are not the government. We are so you're going to share anything that's in it now. Willie's, I saw in a few uh, articles today, Willie's 5% increase, Willie O'Dea's 5% increase in the pension, this old age pension. That's there in a lot of places. Can it's we, there can we tick that one off now? Well, I would certainly support that and I can, oh. I, and I think I think there would be broad support and it was certainly in our Fianna Fáil manifesto. It was also in the Fianna Gael manifesto um, that there would be an increase, I think, over a five years of 30 years. So I, I, I think Willie O'Dea is absolutely correct in putting it out there and saying that we need to have an incremental increase. So, you know, five euros isn't Eamon, uh, would you have envied the control that Fianna Fáil seemed to have on, on government policies and direction? Well, I, I envy the fact that the present government and uh, President Doyle has uh, has money <laughs> that yeah. we didn't have in, uh, in 20, 2011. It's entirely different circumstances. But I'm very glad about that also because uh, I think it, um, uh, and, and I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's a consequence of some of the very difficult decisions that we took over that period of time. I, I think actually, the, what's the, I mean, what we're seeing is a change in the way in which budgets are being done, and I think it's a good change. I think the, I think we're seeing a process here where, you know, the the options and the alternatives are now being being laid out and being teased out. And I think the story, for example, about the USC during the week uh, and the. Um, briefing document from the Department of Finance, which yeah. may have been over-egged a bit. Yeah, but, well, just um, to remind people that that had saw if the if we were to replace the USC, which actually brings in four billion. Am I correct on that? Four billion annually. You'll be looking mm. at options that were in place, like pro- local property tax going up sixfold. You're going to have the the. Uh, the 20% income tax rate raised to 25%, the 40% going to 45%. And really, just to show that these civil servants aren't joking at all, they're going to put 150 on the point, which is getting very, very serious <laughs> altogether. But, uh, so, but, but like, you know, that is a commitment that was given by, that was a, a, an election promise. Yes, and it has to be teased out and now. You know as all to, about election promises. Uh, it, has to be, it has to be teased out now as to, uh, you know, where it, where it goes and uh, how, it's, how it's funded. And if, in fact, it should be, uh, if it should be continued with. And I think that, you know, USC, no matter what the issue is, I think now we're in an era where uh, these issues will have to be teased out and people have to say, well, where the money is going to come from and what are the alternatives they're choosing. Yeah, but for example, now we feel the fall now kind of with pulling the strings, if you want to call it that way. Some would say it's kind of broken lines pulling the string, but pulling the strings nevertheless. The last time we had a four-man economic council, management council, which you were part of, that's now disbanded. Do you think that's good or a bad thing? Well, the Economic Management Council was a product of a crisis, you know, a crisis period, uh, and it was uh, put in place to um, coalition government to have joint decision making and to 
um, have decision making, you know, almost on a daily basis on uh, the, the crisis that we were facing. I mean, the alternative, if you remember, and what had preceded that was effectively uh, decisions were being made uh, within the Department of Finance, these kind of day to day decisions. I mean, obviously, the overall decisions were made in any event by the uh, by the cabinet, but the day to day management of the of the crisis uh, was responsible. Well, and it was, it was a product of they the, say now the, the decisions have been made over in Fianna Fáil headquarters in Mount Street. I don't know whether it has moved on or moved backwards. Fionnán, do you see any kind of progress being well, made on the budget? If Have any, you got any leaks yet? No, well, if anything, I would say the concern is, is not Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil are a very strong hand in terms of going into negotiations, and I think they're, they're being quite pragmatic in terms of their, their approach to it. They'll want a, a few uh, headlines that they can say, right, well, we, we delivered on that. Um, if I was if I was Michael Lunar and Kenny, my concern would be for the, the independent members of the government. Um, I mean, Eamon goes back a long way with with uh, John Halligan. I, I, I'm not sure how likely John Halligan is to is to vote for the, the budget uh, at all. Surely, the secret thing is no tough decisions. Well, then where where he goes, then you end up with um, Shane Ross and Finney McGrath with him as well. But I mean, even even relatively, this government has already had its wobbles uh, over relatively straightforward decisions where where people could say, well, this is the logical reasons why we have to go uh, in in this direction. Um, but no tough decisions will also be trying to turn around to people and go, well, I, I can't give you all the money that we promised to you. So it's not a case that even if you avoid the tough decisions, there's still going to be a tough decision when you have to turn around to people uh, who you have promised an awful lot to over the years and suddenly the reality is dawned that you, you cannot deliver on. Avoidance of a tough decision that the government seem to be working on in the back corridors of Europe now seems to be a scramble, according to the Sunday Business Post, to keep the fine to do with the Apple tax deal under one billion. And, of course, we believe this one billion figure is the amount of money that Michael Noonan is supposed to have at his disposal for this budget. So these lot of lot of articles interrelating and cutting across the budget there today. Would you be worried about that one billion fine? Not only the fine amount, but I suppose the image that or the image damage it could cause. Yes, I think there is potential for it to cause a lot of damage. I mean I think there are two issues here. One is the issue of uh, the fine and what the tax consequences are. Yeah. Uh, the second uh, is twofold. One is uh, Overseas companies investing in Ireland, uh, one of the attractions for them is that there is certainty around uh, taxation. Now, if that certainty is uh, disturbed by uh, the European Commission decision, I think that that will have uh, consequences. And then also, of course, there's the, the reputational uh, issue, which will, will, will also have consequences. That certainty so you refer to as 12.5%. The 12.5%. Corporation Act. By the way, that advisory note from the Department of Finance uh, to do with the USC was going to increase that. One option was to increase that 12.5% to 19.75%. You wouldn't get many people coming to Ireland to invest at that rate. Uh, no, I think I think this, the, the issue about the, co- the corporate tax rate is, is that up to now, Ireland has been able to say we have a 12.5% rate of corporation tax. Uh, it's not going to change. Uh, you know what it is. Uh, and the the difficulty, I think, one of the difficulties arising from the 
uh, European Commission uh, decision, if it turns out like that, is that it, it, it casts a degree of uncertainty about where companies will be vis-a-vis their, uh, their tax affairs with the, with the state. And I presume that I presume a lot of companies are probably looking back over their records to see if they have any case to answer uh, in the same way as Apple had. Yeah, but, it, but to the cold reality of the Minister of Finance having to prepare a budget, he, has, he thinks a billion at his disposal. He may have to hand that billion over something else. How does that impact on the Fianna Fáil thinking? Uh, well, yeah. yeah, no, it has to have a large impact, obviously. And I think there is another lesson from this, and that's that we need to invest more and support our own indigenous industries and support the entrepreneurs that we have. Foreign direct investment is obviously very important when we look at the figures uh, in Apple. They have at the moment five and a half thousand employees who obviously pay a lot of tax into our tax base and have uh, that that money to be able to invest in their own communities. I understand with planning permission just granted that there's the possibility of another thousand jobs there. And of course, there's a whole new uh, database in Galway. And coming from Kildare too, where we have huge employment provided by Intel, HP and Pfizer, which, uh, again, greatly adds to our employment figures. It is very worrying in terms of the impact of uh, this fine going forward. And we certainly would hope that it would not put off uh, FDI in the future. The story on the front page of the Business Post, uh, Jack Horgan Jones, saying that vulture funds are actually targeting those same SMEs that you say are so mm. so important to the lifeblood of the actual economy. So it's all finance-related issues. I'm sure it is going to be the story that's going to dominate and dominate for the next few weeks. When is it all back anyway, if not? And yeah, no, so we're back into the old cycle of come back to the end of September and, and head early now, to be fair. But there I will think, be committee meetings, yeah, to, you know, I, right yeah. through uh, September. I think, to be fair, the entire political system was pretty much jaded. Yeah. Uh, you had, in effect, since since last uh, October, um, a, a, a state where, where nothing really was, was getting done because of the anticipation of a general election and then into the general election, the formation of the government. So probably everybody needed a long break and a bit of blue sky to, to think about. Yeah, but but when the doll returns, there will only be two or three weeks to the budget. That's the point I'm making. And yeah, I absolutely, I work there. I know the, the committees are there. I think there isn't a great hearing for it. There isn't a push for it, as they'd say, as amongst the general public that the TDs are actually working in Leinster Hall. But to focus on the on the budget itself, there is very little time. Yeah, but you're, I mean, your, your talks go on, don't have to, talks between individual ministers uh, and Pascal. So when are you expecting your first real leak now? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, when, when is sept- September? <laughs> to treat it as time, you know, yeah. September well, the 1st. Well, well, then well, 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 minds you, become concentrated. Can you break that uh, five euro on the pension thing? But anyway, we leave it at that for now. We're still reviewing the Sunday papers with Raymond Gilmore, Fiona Lachlan and Finlan Sheen. And I suppose in this last section of the show, I suppose we look at one of the greatest annual events TV-wise that we have in this country, which is the Rosa Tralee. But it actually it took a dramatic turn during this week. The most exciting uh, I suppose part of the the broadcast, I think, a, a mammoth broadcast, marathon broadcast, indeed, was uh, the intervention of non-roses or non-rose related issues into the event. Were you watching it, Phil? I was watching on the first night where our Kildare Rose, Maeve O'Sullivan, was absolutely wonderful. And I saw some she, of it on she the first night. She's north or south Kildare now, she? Oh, she's Newbridge, Sarasfields, <laughs> up the sash. 
and um, the following evening I saw some of it not all of it and I didn't actually get to see the Sydney Rose intervention Did you see the intervention by Father Matt O'Connor? I did I did see that and I thought it was an unusual enough place to do it considering that none of the 65 Roses had children themselves so he was trying to make a point uh, about families and he was also making point dressed as a priest as well too and uh, so I, I wasn't really on the sure fathers about for it. justice yes yes yeah did you see it Eamon no I didn't see it but I, I you're, not a, you're not a fan I, I, I actually was at the Rose of Tralee on one occasion because I worked in Tralee as a trade union official and I we thought used, you were going to say and we, an used to, and we used to we used to provide <laughs> the cut, no. no no we only we only provided the chairs for the dome uh, so on the strength of that I, I, I got a ticket to go to it one year um, I, th- I think uh, I think the fuss about uh, the Sydney Rose for example I mean why wouldn't she express an opinion about something that yeah. young women talk about in private anyway and in fact she had a very good article in yesterday's Irish Times, which I think, you know, it gives a lot of background uh, to this. I think actually in terms of, I've seen a lot of this stuff about the damage it's doing to the contest. I think the biggest damage that was done to the contest was the cack-handed way in which the number of roses were cut in half. Half of them mm-hmm. put into one room and half put into another room and then one half told, well, you're not, uh, you're not getting into the next round. Well, well RT, Prob- I probably has And, and the, or- the organisation yeah. is actually looking at that now, that particular cack-handedness of the thing. But Finland, this is now a political event? Well, as, as Brendan O'Connor writes in the Sunday Independent today, the, the Sydney Rose has detailed her shock that the Rose of Tralee is a lovely girls' competition and a TV show. I mean, there's, there's an element here. That, <laughs> yeah, you know, she didn't do much Googling <laughs> before <laughs> she, she got on the plane. You know, you're kind of wondering, the people who are now slagging off the Rose of Tralee, that they've had good to say about it the previous week. Um, I didn't see it. I have no problem with, with her expressing her view. I, I think if you're basically going to go down the route, though, that, that everybody comes up on stage and starts expressing and, and I'm the anti-austerity alliance uh, rose and I'm the Labour Party rose but isn't it happening in the Miss World for years Donald Trump's beloved Miss World you know they're all for world peace surely that's a political yeah, statement but in I, itself I, I, you're, will your, how long will your TV audience of a million last if it goes down that route. I mean, I, I said, what is what is the Rose of Tralee? It's the Festival of Kerry. It's basically one town which has a has a more picturesque town down the road, managing to dominate the the tourist season for a couple of weeks, uh, bring a bit of business in. Well, I, I I think it's fair enough to say that that Killarney is is kind of the the, the, the jewel tourist, in the, the crown. jewel in the crown, the tourism capital of Ireland. It's it's geared up for that. Tralee is a more has a lot more going for it in terms of the the the, the of business that, 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 that are there. But Tralee has done done very well in that regard. The reason RTE broadcasts is because it gets a a large audience. People know what what they're what they're what they're getting. Out of it. I mean, in in recent years, we've we've now seen that um, it it is now regarded as as a barometer in terms of if if something is mentioned or spoken about as Rosa Tralee, then that's kind of representative of of, of Ireland uh, as a whole and what what is uh, acceptable. And maybe that's no harm. But if you're if you're going to uh, you've got to be aware here of killing the golden goose. I mean, but isn't the golden goose kind of dying? The numbers are diminishing. Well, uh, you're a second ago now you were giving out about RTE. I mean, RTE have actually expanded their coverage of the Rose of Tralee. They wouldn't be doing that if mm. they wasn't getting a, su- a sufficient audience. I mean, next we're going to have people complaining that the late, late toy show shouldn't be on because it's raising expectations of children about what kind of gifts they could, that they can they can get uh, for Christmas. And that really, if the All-Ireland Hurling Final is being broadcast, then the All-Ireland Hockey Final should also be broadcast. I'm sure know. there's a campaign for that too. Somebody's lobbying RTE for that. But Fiona, do you think it's 
should be politicised or should be like they had this rule that you couldn't say a poem on on the stage this year. Yeah, which I didn't get at all because that is to me one of the nicest parts of the festival where you get to hear the roses uh, doing their piece and be yeah. that with. But the if there were politically happened, motivated poems now, you know. Uh, would yeah. they be allowed? Well, political satire. They? Political satire. There's great entertainment in that, and we see and hear that all the time. But I, I do think that the Rose of Tralee Festival, if, if it's going to change and move with the modern times, and I think they did try to do that a little bit this time, that it should and could be a barometer of change. And it's not too long ago that we had the first unmarried mother as a Rose of Tralee. And when you think about 65 women, um, you know, being whittled down to 30, surely. If, if that is going to be a microcosm of society that surely would be the case and then we had the first openly gay rose which was great as well too so we certainly should not be surprised that women have take the opportunity to discuss what's important to them and how but they the question is things. should it be allowed rather than be surprised well I think yeah to some level it should be I, yeah I, I think I think that if um women are going to be true to themselves and if the Rose of Tralee contest is going to embrace that this is a modern world and we, we need to discuss the issues that impact on, on the lovely roses um, th- then we should have some level of political discussion. Eamon, yes. if you were selecting candidates to run in your party now, if somebody was able to kind of get that type of publicity, would you encourage it? Well, I, I, I don't see what the fuss is about people expressing their opinions. I mean, this well, is a bit like, a fuss. That's but, the but this is a bit, it was the same kind of fuss that there was in the 1960s when Gabe Byrne, when he started the Late Late Show and started asking questions about social issues and people started saying, well, why, why is this happening on a light entertainment show? It actually made the programme. I mean, the idea that you will have uh, 30 or 40 or whatever it is, uh, uh, young women who are being interviewed on television and that nobody would ever ask them an opinion about anything, that they wouldn't have an opinion or that they wouldn't express an opinion, I think it's just antediluvian. Of course the uh, people can. And I think in the course of time, I think people will look back at, at the fuss over this and say, what on earth was all that about? It'll become perfectly normal if this um, festival continues and the, you know the, uh, uh, that you'll have... Um, people who are on stage and they're asked an opinion about this or they're asked an opinion about another one will have one opinion another will have another opinion people will shrug their shoulders and say that's her view and uh, get over it but isn't that kind of thing and that's what you're talking about that be just pure sloganism because there isn't time for as described in, as described by Justine McCarthy in the paper for the MC as in Bocheljas uh, that there isn't time for him to shall we say uh, have an in-depth debate or interview with the panellist about their discussion. So it's just pure sort of appeal the Eighth Amendment. Yeah, well, that's there, all you there, can say. That's base. I'm, it, it, strikes me, it strikes me that there'd be a different uh, response if one of the roses that got up and went, well, I'm staunchly pro-life and I believe in conserving the, the Eighth Amendment and the protection of, the, of, of life. Uh, and that, that, would, that would generate an entirely different response. I mean, I, I thought it was good that, that RTE didn't. I, I was I was watching it on Tuesday to see, are RTE going to have to clarify this now and say, well, that doesn't represent the views of this, that and the other because they'll get, get any complaints. They didn't have to. I mean, it was, she was entitled to express her opinion and, it's, and any, any other roles are entitled to express their opinions if they, if they want to go down the same route. It's a bit like the OCI. They're all literally... It's not the Rosary does not go forward as a representative of Ireland that, that has an official stamp and goes across the world. It's a franchise. It's a, a an organisation. It's it it has chapters throughout the 
the world. It puts people forward. Uh, there's nothing official about it. It's on the telly because people like watching it. Simple as that. Will this, uh, I suppose, controversy called on two nights on it, will that enhance or diminish the reputation of the competition? At the end of the day, is this for the better of Rose Tralee? i.e. more people attending or watching next year or less what do you think I think it'll enhance it definitely Eamon well look this this idea that roses of Tralee should be seen and not heard I think (laughs) is for for the past Uh, I think I think this and I hope it will be the case and by the way I don't agree that you know if if people are up and they're asked opinions uh, you know (laughs) since since when are we having in-depth interviews with anybody about anything anyway Uh, we're in the era of the soundbite I mean next year it could be somebody would ask them what do you think of the burkini what do you think of something uh, something else and uh, people express their their opinions and I think the idea that uh, the participants in the contest that they have opinions, they should this, the idea that they shouldn't express the opinions and that they should shut up and come on and look beautiful and all of this uh, you know, whatever happened to the idea of freedom of speech, I mean that's censorship Yeah, Finan, do you think it'll enhance it? I, I think it'll, it'll probably draw a bigger audience for it, and and, and all the better if it if it uh, leads to other roses coming up in future years and expressing uh, opinions upon upon a, a variety of issues. I mean, they're all they're all intelligent young women. I mean, there's nothing. There shouldn't be any restriction upon them uh, expressing views on whatever topics they they feel are are, are of importance to them. Uh, we leave that there, Eamon, Before we finish this part of the program, be remiss of me not to congratulate your peace process that you're involved in, your EU Special Envoy to Colombia and great move forwards in recent weeks in that particular process? Yes, there is a final agreement now between the government of Colombia and FARC. brings to an end a conflict that has gone on for 52 years, has claimed the lives of 220,000 people. Staggering. Staggering, yes. I mean, you're talking about the entire population of Cork, for example, equivalent of it. Six million people displaced from their homes. It's like the entire population of this this island. So it does give uh, Colombia, I think, the opportunity of of a fresh start. Um, There are going to be bumps on the road. One of the first uh, challenges now will be to have the peace deal approved in a referendum. That will take place in the in early October. And what, what's the feeling? What's, what are the polls telling us? It's mixed. Um, some recent polls are suggesting that it, it, it might go down. Um, uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are not affected by it because the, the, the far conflict took place largely in, uh, in, in rural areas. Uh, there is some unease with some of the, as we saw here in our own peace agreement, some unease with some of the compromises that had to be made. One of the things that I've been able to do is been able to explain to people for example, the, the two-year early release uh, for people who have been convicted mm. of, uh, of of crimes here um, and, and to say, you know, OK, that was difficult for people to understand and accept at the time, but it was necessary. I remember the controversy when I served in government over the letters that were issued by um, Tony Blair and, and his people uh, to people who were on the run at the time. And again, that was part of the compromises and deal that had to be done in order to bring the whole thing to a conclusion. So, um, uh, you know, it's it's been valuable, I think, to be able to bring to this conflict the perspective of uh, our experience of the the Northern Ireland peace process, and to give uh, uh, to give some advice on 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 those lines. But it certainly is it's um it, it's it's a good news story in a world where there's a lot of bad news stories. Well, we wish you continued success with that, and we leave it at that. Our guests were Fiona Lachlan, Fiona Fall, TD for. 
South Kildare and former employee of Special Olympics Ireland Eamon Gilmore former Thornish the leader of the Labour Party and as he was saying there current EU Special Envoy to the Peace Process in Colombia and Finan Sheehan editor of the Irish Independent thank you all for coming in